Hi, I'm David Franklin, and you're listening to Episode 2 of Season 2 of the Shintaido of America podcast. Shintaido, in case you haven't heard this word, is an amazing body movement practice, a dynamic and creative holistic health exercise invented in Japan in the 1960s. Shintaido can be a way to open up to a deeper connection with ourselves, with our communities, and with nature. In the second episode of Season 2, you're going to hear an interview with orchestral conductor and Shintaido practitioner Kent Nagano. If a moment of uh, evolution or development is taking place within an ensemble, it is critical to know when not to interfere. But before we get to that, I'm going to read you a chapter from Michael Thompson's autobiography, Untying Knots, a Shintaido Chronicle. Michael is one of only four master instructors of Shintaido in the world today, the only non-Japanese master instructor, and significantly, the only master instructor who had no prior background in martial arts before starting to practice Shintaido. He studied Shintaido in Japan with the founder of the discipline, Hiroyuki Aoki, but our story continues in France, where Michael sets the stage for his encounter with this unique movement art. Okay, ready? Here we go. Chapter 2 in France I tried to shake the cobwebs out of my head as the ship was docking at Le Havre, my body saturated with beer, wine, and nicotine. My vague and hastily formed plan was to stay with a friend in Paris until I got my bearings. I would then proceed to the Bibliothèque Nationale Library, get a borrower's card, and begin research on an ill-defined study of the psychologist and literary critic Gaston Bachelard. This year, I imagined, would be a kind of premature sabbatical, after all, I had only been teaching at the university level for two years, during which I would establish my academic credentials by publishing a, quote, solid, close quote, critical essay. I proceeded from the Guerre Saint-Lazare, named after Lazarus, an appropriate touch, I thought, to my friend's place in the Marais district of Paris on the Rue Saint-Paul, another foreshadowing of what was to come. In my letter, I had asked if I could stay for a couple of weeks, and when I saw the apartment, I was surprised to learn that he had a roommate and they shared a single room with a very rudimentary kitchen, sink and gas hot plate, and that was it. The toilet was Turkish style and was in the hallway used in common by the tenants of four apartments. My new roommates generously welcomed me and set up a kind of hammock for me between their two foam rubber sleeping mattresses. I slept very badly the first night, suffering from a mild form of the DTs since I had had no alcohol in 24 hours. The next day I ran out and bought a six-pack of beer and a carton of cigarettes. Although I had formulated the project of doing research, my real intention was to throw myself into a hedonistic, bohemian lifestyle, succumbing to decadence if need be. My two previous stays in Paris had been devoted to study and the writing of my doctoral dissertation, so I was determined to lead an unfettered existence this time around. During my previous stay in Paris, my friend and I had consumed a lot of booze and reveled in our mutual feelings of existential alienation, 
so I thought I would have a partner for this excursion to the dark side of my being. Of course, this is not how things worked out. During the two years we had not seen each other, he had discovered and had been won over to Christian science, abandoning or being healed of his earlier bad habits. He neither drank, smoked, nor caroused, and, to make matters worse, was sharing his apartment with a co-religionist, a true believer whose only reading consisted of the Bible and Mary Baker Eddy's commentary, and whose taste in music was limited to Handel's Messiah. Not exactly the setting I had expected or hoped for. For the first week, I continued to drink and fill the apartment with smoke, oblivious to the fact that this behavior was totally at odds with my roommates. I still cannot understand why they put up with me, since, now that I am clean, I am very intolerant of those who willfully pollute my environment. Apparently, they were praying for me, convinced that the error of my ways would be shown to me, the strength of their convictions and view of the universe were so indomitable that I did, in fact, stop drinking and smoking shortly thereafter. I will always appreciate their tolerance and goodwill, even though I did not share their religious beliefs. The two-week point of my stay quickly came and went. Since our lifestyles were now attuned, we were able to share our very small space harmoniously and happily, I turned 33, a turning point if one is to believe numerologists. My research projects quickly fell through when I was unable to get permission to use the library's facilities since I had neither official affiliation nor letters of introduction. French bureaucracy is a formidable and implacable adversary and I dreaded having to find a way around the rules, so I gave up. Thus ended my flimsy project to continue my academic pursuits. This left me almost totally devoid of any plan of action, since my intention to fling myself into Dionysian excess had also been thwarted. But it also meant that I was left with a clean slate to start a new life. You've just been hearing a reading from Michael Thompson's Untying Knots, a Shintaido Chronicle, and this is the Shintaido of America podcast. I'm David Franklin. We're about to hear my interview with orchestral conductor and Shintaido practitioner Kent Nagano, but before we get to that, if you're enjoying today's podcast, the most important thing you can do to help out is to tell people about us. I want to give a big shout out to those of you who have already shared the podcast on social media and who gave us a good rating on whichever podcasting app you're using. If you haven't done that yet, it would be great if you could just hit pause and do that right now. Share the podcast on social media and give us a good rating and then hit play again. I'll wait. Okay, thanks. On with the show. Our guest today, Kent Nagano, is considered one of the outstanding conductors for both operatic and orchestral repertoire. 
He has been general music director of the Hamburg State Opera and chief conductor of the Philharmonische Staatsorchester Hamburg, the Hamburg State Orchestra, since September 2015. He is a much sought-after guest conductor, having worked with the world's leading international orchestras. In September 2021, he published his second book with Berlin Verlag, Ten Lessons of My Life, in which he recalls ten very personal encounters in his life, among them with Icelandic pop artist Björk, Frank Zappa, Leonard Bernstein, Pierre Boulet, and the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Donald Glaser. In 2019, he published Classical Music, Expect the Unexpected, a passionate appeal for the relevance of classical music in today's world. Kent Nagano is also a Shintaido practitioner, and while it's often said that there are parallels between leading a group of bodies in Shintaido movement and conducting an orchestra, I wanted to get a sense of what that might mean from the point of view of someone who is highly experienced behind the conductor's podium. Maestro Kent Nagano, thank you very much for joining us on the Shintaido of America podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure uh, to speak with you today. Hiroyuki Aoki, the founder of the movement discipline Shintaido, says that leading a group of Shintaidoists is similar to orchestral conducting, or at least it ought to be. But I think many people don't know much about the process of conducting. So can you help us understand what he meant? Do you see any similarities between Shintaido practice and orchestral conducting? I'm not exactly sure what he's referring to, but there are certainly uh, certain overlaps. As with any form of communication, and that especially includes any form of social interaction where you're assuming a leadership role, any form of artificiality or imbalance is immediately perceptible. That, I would say, even extends outside of social leadership uh, uh, context, even within personal relationships, uh, say, for example, between parents and children, any kind of artificiality is immediately perceptible, particularly by the children, and can get in the way of open and effective dialogue. So in that sense, uh, the ideas and the exercises that encourage balance and uh, somehow connection with priorities beyond one's own personal ego, I would seem are really essential. Any form of leadership where there's a doubt or somehow a feeling of dishonesty or something that's out of balance really does compromise your effectiveness when working particularly within a large group of people. So in that sense, having participated in many Shintaito lessons, uh, Shintaito workshops, seminars. That's the one thing that one does feel almost immediately from the people who are leading those particular encounters, and particularly from Ito-sensei himself, is that sense of direct, uh, open authenticity. That's not something that necessarily comes automatically. It needs to be trained and learned because, unfortunately, in our lives with various social pressures and different kinds of uh, uh, societal aggression, we learn to protect ourselves. And oftentimes that those protective instincts come up in the form of defensiveness, which can be perceived as being really artificial or somehow indirect. That's one of the biggest gifts that Shintaro can offer is that sense of um, a balance. From the layperson's point of view, 
when they see an orchestral conductor, they see a person, a person gesticulating at the podium in front of the orchestra. Now, of course, that those gestures stand on top of a huge infrastructure of classical tradition, the training of musicians, music schools, the making of the instruments, the process of documenting and writing scores, etc., etc. But is it possible for me to ask the artificiality that you're describing, how would that manifest in the, in the moment when a conductor is in front of the orchestra gesturing? Uh, the art of conducting is actually is tied to the word conduit, which means through which some communicator, some communication, or some something is passed, uh, is is exchanged, and a great aid to that is if your physical movements correspond to what would be agreed as um, an understandable form of communication. So that being said, if you were to look at say three professional conductors and observe their gestures, everyone would agree that those gestures are very, very different. They're not the same. So the question comes is comes then, what is it exactly? What is effective uh, conducting technique? Conducting technique is essentially how effective you're uh, able to communicate. Sometimes through physical coordination, Communication doesn't necessarily occur with how your body is moving. Communication may occur through body language of a different sort. Sometimes we say the most effective way to make music is to follow each other's um, heart or to follow each other's um, essence. We particularly say that when we're playing chamber music, for example, where there is no verbal dialogue during a performance, but there is a lot of communication taking place. There's no real conductor. There is physical movement, but it's actually through a sense of um, living timing um, of somehow a communication of what could or might be appropriate happening or experience in the future. And that, in the end, has nothing to do with a, with a universal code of, of movement. It's just something completely natural. And again, the ties into Shintaido really obvious because uh, in your nearly every lesson that you take as a, as a practitioner of Shintaido, uh, you're learning uh, fluid and very, very natural uh, body movements through which communicate really this, uh, this sense of what could or would be appropriate um, experience that would happen in the near future or in the far future. So in short, yes, there are professional technical uh, movements that would be agreed uh, as a form of communication uh, of certain things like time or pulse or intensity or dynamics or change or acceleration or slowing down. There, there, are, there is an accepted visual code, but it is brought into question because when you look at people who actually are communicating that, they can at times be so different that it's difficult to really ascertain what they are. It really is um, a personal form of communication that's based upon a fluidity of body movement. I heard an interview with Sir Georg Scholte uh, in which he described his process as a conductor. He says, first, I rehearse the orchestra very hard. 
so that they would be able to play the concert without me on the day of the concert. I don't think about music at all. Then I walk into the concert hall and give the orchestra that, that something extra, that oomph, to really energize the performance. As a conductor yourself, regardless of what you think about Schulte, can you say anything about what that extra oomph, what does he mean by that, or, or how is it achieved? Uh, music is a performance art where, in that sense, it's ephemeral. The performance basically occurs in the past because by the time you hear the performance, sound waves or light waves travel at a speed that is not instantaneous. It, ta it takes a moment to become perceptible by a public member. And so really you're, you are, existentially speaking, experiencing the past. And in that sense, uh, musical performance is like a living organism and that there is a birth, there's a lifespan and there is an end, there's a death to the performance. And when it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That's different from painting. It's different from sculpture. It's different from literature, from poetry, where there is something uh, physical which lasts beyond the creator. In that sense, if it is a moment an exist existential moment where one is experiencing the past, yes, but you're also living in the present and you're keenly aware of the future. That's why you know and what to expect in the next note of a melody, if you know it well. And if that particular note doesn't come, you perceive it either as a mistake or as a some sort of uh, oddity. So uh, simultaneously experiencing past, present, and future at the same time makes being part of a musical performance very, very special. We oftentimes say that a performance, it requires minim at minimum three participants. First of all, there has to be a composer. Even in if you're improvising, there needs to be a composer of some sort. There needs to be an interpreter, someone who is interpreting what the composer has written. And there needs to be a public through which dialogue can take place. If any one of those three does not exist, then you cannot have a performance. So we especially felt that recently during the coronavirus period where public was not allowed to attend and many, many institutions, including my own, were reduced to basically recording, uh, recording for time-lapse streaming, even real-time streaming. There's a huge delay. Um, so the question was, is this really a performance uh, in the true definition of the sense? And many of us felt that, well, yes, it is a representation of a performance, which is really at a time of um, universal crisis, like, the, like a pandemic is, it is a form of communication that is essential. But from a real point of view, uh, a real definition, as now today we live at a time where the uh, coronavirus is still with us, but many of the social restrictions have been lifted so that we can return to some sort of uh, semblance of, of uh, normal social intercourse. And audience, composer, and public uh, performers, we all feel that we have an enormous thirst or a hunger for this live performance again. It, it is irreplaceable live. 
That's what uh, Sir George Schulte was referring to. You can rehearse in a studio. You can study in a private, uh, at a private desk. You can go to a library. You can prepare yourself meticulously, which you must as a professional. But that is not the same thing as a performance. A performance is ephemeral. Uh, it happens just at that moment. There's a birth, there's a life, there's a death. So if you're going to perform, it is different than preparation. It's um, a completely different moment. It requires different energy, just like a life requires different energy than thinking about life. So that that was what um, I'm sure what uh, Marshall Schulte was referring to. And I think the only parallel that one can draw, draw from uh, Shintaido is if you're in a situation where you're required to use those Shintaido skills uh, in an active way towards how it was conceived. So in that sense, believe me, you will find a moment of extra oomph if you are in a perilous situation and you, are, you need to apply the techniques which you've been trained, uh, which you've learned, uh, and suddenly they, be, they require uh, uh, engagement in, in, a, in a sense of performance. I would even say a workshop or a drill is not really a performance. It's maybe a display, but uh, maybe in a competition, uh, maybe then comes this um, uh, moment of performance, but well, certainly in course, real life in a threatening situation, that would be considered a performance. And of course, in Shintaido, we have examinations and evaluations, which are in fact public performances. Um, one of the things, you know, when you were discussing uh, the the relationship to present past and future and of course i understand that you mean you know in a literal sense perhaps fractions of a second in the past but it doesn't matter because the metaphor still applies it reminded me of a concept in shintaido which you may have heard of a timing b timing and c timing c timing meaning that you react to the attack after it has already started. Uh, B timing, meaning that you react just at the same moment simultaneously. And A timing, meaning you are sensitive enough to react and avoid the situation even occurring by reacting before it happens. Um, now, that has a martial arts application, but I also see it as metaphorically perhaps having a, a broader application. And that's why I asked the question uh, about the timing of gestures. Because when I was watching Riccardo Muti conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, it seemed to me as a, as a layperson that some of his gestures were synchronized with the rhythm, some of them anticipated what was coming next. And so I was curious about that aspect of communication with the orchestra. Well, part of effective leadership in any form, whether it's in music or the political arena or directing a business, is sensing when it's best not to interfere. Because um, movement um, and inertia, they are, uh, they are phenomena that take place um, 
in spite of sort of physical interference at all. They, they just exist there, properties of physics. And the same thing with a live performance, uh, an ensemble of highly trained professional musicians, of course, are capable of uh, performing perfectly well without uh, a conductor standing in front of them. Whether or not that performance is coherent or of a especially high artistic level of uh, expression, uh, that's a different matter. Simply performing the work is um, is something that uh, virtually any uh, well-trained professional group of musicians uh, can do. If a moment, a moment of uh, evolution or development is taking place within an ensemble, it is critical to know when not to interfere because that can be extremely distracting. However, at critical moments of transition, evolution, or development, uh, change take place. At that moment, leadership is essential for ensemble. And that's when, of course, um, somehow to collectively breathe or collectively collectively uh, orient oneself to what could or would be appropriate in the near future, that's when um, it really is important to have effective leadership. So yeah, uh, physical gestures, um, uh, it depends on the context of where those gestures are taking place. Are there any questions that you really want me to ask you to give you a chance to say something you didn't say yet? Well, no, I mean, I just said it. The right. The important thing is that um, the lessons that one learns through Shintaito, they really do uh, influence and last uh, a lifetime if, if you really absorb them well. It goes beyond just simply um, learning particular movements because it's a way of, um, that I would say, involves all dimensions of being, the physical being, the mental being, the um, contact with the environment, which is so, so essential. And those principles of balance, I guess that would be the shortcut to say it. If they are ever to be lost, then your quality of life definitely uh, will suffer consequences. That's why it's important, at least for me personally, to make sure that uh, not only do those principles stay active, but actually they, um, they are allowed to develop and grow with experience. Kent Nagano and I continued chatting informally for a few minutes after the interview had officially ended, and he told me this interesting story about how he had invited Master Shintaido instructor Haroyoshi Ito to give a Shintaido workshop for his orchestra. It's a part of my rehearsal to have Ito come in and, and lead a Shintaido workshop because I felt, well, you know, it cannot but help our sense of ensemble you know, uh, just uh, an awareness of playing together, of making music together. Uh, it, it would only be enhanced through um, uh, Shintaidos. How did the orchestra react to it? First of all, uh, there was a sense of uh, jubilation because uh, a com how many times in your life do you have a completely novel experience? You don't have that very often. Um, a totally unique new experience that you've never ever even thought of before so there was a, a sense of anticipation and jubilation and i think well i just returned there for the first time in um, about 
20 years, I guess. Uh, I led the orchestra for the Aix-en-Provence Festival. And many of the old-timers, who were very young 20 years ago, came to me to reminisce about that one morning when Ito came in and led the whole class. Uh, it was very, very funny um, to see uh, the woodwind section standing up on their toes and stretching their arms and, and the entire violin section uh, sort of uh, twisting and moving their hips. It was um, very, very funny. But um, to me, to see and witness that that left a lasting impression uh, that uh, somehow uh, was not forgotten for over 20 years. That was a really strong message. So. Shintaido is one of those gifts that lasts a lifetime. Even now, the daily physical training includes uh, Shintaido katos, which I still practice. I still um, keep as a part of both mental and physical preparation. So it's a pleasure to speak with you and to share these experiences. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, great pleasure to meet you. Likewise. This is the Shintaido of America podcast. You've just been hearing an interview with orchestral conductor and Shintaido practitioner Kent Nagano, and I'm Shintaido instructor David Franklin. We're nearly done, but be sure to listen through to the end of the credits for the cherry. Before the cherry, I'm going to pass the hat around those of you who are hearing the sound of my voice and do a bit of busking here on the Information Superhighway. Shintaido of America is a totally member-supported non-profit organization, and there are many ways to support our truly micro-budget production of educational materials. And I really mean that. We produce a huge amount of content on volunteer power, but some things just require a few bucks in the bank. So one way is to make a one-time donation in any amount, or to become a member of Shintaido of America for $60 per year, if you're hearing this in 2023. It would mean a great deal to our hardworking team. You can do that, sign up for our free email newsletter, and also find all kinds of free educational resources at our website, where you can also find all the previous episodes of this podcast, which is www.shintaido.org. That's www.shintaido.org. That's Whiskey, Whiskey, Whiskey. Sierra Hotel, India, November. Tango Alpha, India. Delta Oscar. Oscar Romeo Golf. Got it? You can also find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube by searching for Shintaido of America. And our email address is podcast at shintaido.org. Our episode today was recorded and edited by me, David Franklin, with support from Sarah Baker, Connie Borden, Teresa Soldatova, Jim Sterling, the Joe Zawilski Memorial Fund, and of course, the members of Shintaido of America. Thank you. Okay, here's the cherry. The worst part of making a movement in Shintaido is if you are trying too hard to make that movement. And the worst thing you can do to Brahms is to try to make Brahms. As soon as you are thinking, now I must make this phrase feel like Brahms, then it's not music anymore. That was a quotation from today's guest, Kent Nagano, in an interview written by Michael Goldberg and published in the Shintaido of America newsletter in 1988. And guess what? You can find back issues of the newsletter online 
as well as previous episodes of this podcast, all for free at our website, www.shintaido.org. Thanks for listening to the Shintaido of America podcast. Contents of this podcast, copyright Shintaido of America 2023. Shintaido, opening to life. Thank you.